0: We're going to make it the best all-star weekend ever, but we hold ourselves to a high bar, but not only that, but how can we make it as community-impacting, as sustainable, and invite the, you know, invite the public to be with us. The future owner of the Indiana Pacers, Steve Simon, on what it means for Indianapolis, when the world's best basketball players come here to play in the 2024 NBA All-Star Game. They'll tip off in a venue that has undergone the second largest renovation in NBA history. New bars, new seats, essentially a whole new third level here at
1: GameBridge Fieldhouse. The goal is to make this more than just a basketball game for fans.
0: Whoever thought that 22 years ago, uh, this building would become a new generation building uh, and it will as we go forward. One of the key players behind all of this, Danny Lopez. He brings a unique background to his front office role with the Indiana Pacers.
1: We were fortunate and we've been blessed to be here and, and our generations continue here in the United States. And you can't take that for granted. I mean, we've we've created something that the world has never seen and it's it's incumbent upon us to preserve it. And when you've lost it, you have a, a true appreciation for it.
0: Vice President for External Affairs and Corporate Communications, Danny Lopez, his path from growing up, the son of Cuban refugees in Miami, to his role now, a key figure in pushing the pace for basketball in Indiana. He's my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Danny Lopez learned the value of hard work at a young age growing up in South Florida. Mom and dad arrived in Miami in the early 60s, immigrants from Cuba. That experience gave Danny a different outlook on life, on how to do business with those from all walks of life, gave him perspective on the importance of diversity in the workplace, armed him with the tools necessary to deal with a career in politics, education, and now professional sports. And I am pleased to be joined on the podcast this week by Danny Lopez. He currently serves as Vice President for External Affairs and Corporate Communications for Pacer Sports and Entertainment. Danny, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Gary? I'm good. I'm good. You know, lots we can talk about. I want to get into your background, which I think is is fascinating. But Pacer Sports and Entertainment, you talk about transfer, the, the word transformational is used a lot. But in terms of the project uh, projects that have been going on inside and outside Gainbridge Fieldhouse, uh, massive. I mean, for folks who haven't been there yet, and I know the outside uh, project is continuing, talk about the impact that you think these these changes to the field house for i think it was what a 400 million dollar project 400 million
1: dollar project the second largest renovation in the history of the nba so a massive massive project top to bottom and, and you know I, I think it's just it's just a testament to the to the investment that is made and how critically important uh the the community the business community the civic community the philanthropic community see an amenity like gambridge Fieldhouse downtown uh, as and and really a, a community building but Gary, when, when folks come, and a lot of people at this point have seen the interior of the uh, of the building now as it's been renovated, the goal really was to try to create experiences within the experience. I mean, the, the fan just is different now. It's, we're in a different generation of fans. The business is different. And so when people come to, to a game or to a concert or, or an event at GameBridge, uh, they're looking for a series of experiences, and they're looking for opportunities to network or socialize or uh, you know, use technology, new technology. And so all of that had to be incorporated. And some of that had to be built out on the fly. So this was not an easy project. And, you know, you, you've, you've spoken several times to, to Mel Rains and, and Rick and obviously all the people that were involved in making that happen. The beauty of my job is I get to go out and tell people the story. I get to go out and, and explain to people how unique it is and how different it is and how people need to be proud of, uh, of this amenity that we collectively own here in downtown the other thing i'd add to that is that you know and and i'm not sure sometimes it's hard for us to have a a true appreciation of of what we've got here but if you get out and you see other venues i mean this this one has been built for for basketball it truly is a world-class facility and uh it was even before the renovations but now you know you've taken this incredible building you've just made it better it really is a very very cool venue for for folks that have not been back
0: yeah yeah and what i think is interesting too Is the fact you have that that basketball centric uh, venue with the history and the fieldhouse feel from Indiana that was part of that? That was probably one of the challenges, and I think it was met and exceeded in terms of keeping that feel with putting in the modern the modern amenities.
1: Yeah, and you're exactly right. And actually, you know, and I, I obviously this was this was way before my my time here in Indiana, but. Uh, I think there was there was some healthy debate in the community when when the field house was being built around whether or not it should, from an exterior, sort of look like uh, an homage to or a tribute to to field houses around the state and, and all that kind of thing. And obviously, uh, it's, it's withstood the test, test of time. People love the, the iconic look of it. But you're exactly right. Then, you know, how do you take this building? How do you make the upgrades? How do you do the state of the art stuff that you have to do on the inside, but still preserve the feel? Uh, for a building that is the host for this, you know, this boys and girls state finals and all of the amateur events that we have here. It's not just professional basketball. It has to feel like the people's building. And I think we did a, we did a really nice job of that.
0: You talk about the people's building. I've heard you say this, Jim Morris and others looking at Gainbridge Fieldhouse is, you know, a bit of a an intersection, a a, a meeting place for the state of Indiana, you know, not just central Indiana, but be it, be it basketball or concerts or events or all the things that are hosted there at really kind of a place where Indiana comes to connect. Is that, is that an accurate statement?
1: Look, the the people that the people who know me know that I sort of, I I get, I I get, I get all ginned up around high school basketball and sort of the amateur things that we do here. But I'll just tell you the the boys and girls State finals that day, which is a long day, right? We get in yeah. here real early and we get out real late, is the coolest experience in this building because you have people that come from all over the state of Indiana, many of whom will never be back in the building but for this, or have right. never been in the building, but for this day. And there's such a goodness to it. There's such a quintessential American experience really is what it is. And they come and there's an appreciation for the building. There's an appreciation for the experience. It is such a cool thing. And I think it embodies what we're talking about here, which is, you know, this really is a state facility. It is not just, we're not just the the city's team or the state's team. And this building really belongs to everybody. And events like that are really just a terrific embodiment and a reminder that, uh, that people are coming here and they're, and, and they should feel a sense of, of ownership over the building
0: and, and there's more to come the outdoor uh, piece uh, of the project talk about that because I think that's going to be opening right uh, Yeah, we're, soon we're gonna we're gonna cut ribbon on
1: that uh here in in the uh, mid part of, of August. And we'll do some cool programming all throughout. There's all kinds of things that we're going to do in there, uh, thinking about sunrise yoga, thinking about watch parties and tournaments and clinics and other things that we'll be able to do to program concerts, to be able to program that space. Um, But, you know, it's Bicentennial Unity Plaza. We were very intentional about choosing that name. Uh, You know, there's a lot going on downtown. We have obviously a very vibrant downtown, but we, we wanted to build an amenity that was a draw for visitors, but also was an addition to sort of helping us Build out a strategy or helping the city build out a strategy of greater residential density, uh, greater attractiveness to the downtown. And that's what it is. Um, That's what it is. And, you know, we've got, of course, Commission Row that's going in there, uh, the building that'll be done before All Star. And so, uh, it, that that's sort of a, a harkening back to to when Indianapolis was a crossroads for trade, and mm-hmm. you know, drawing on our history, but also looking forward as a, as an incredible world class amenity on the plaza. There's just so much to be excited about for the exterior of that building, and it's really a nice way to connect up the rest of the downtown to the interior of the building itself.
0: Yeah, you talk about downtown Indianapolis and the number of projects that are either underway or envisioned. It is substantial. You look at the the Elanco campus along the White River. You look at what will happen. And I anticipate before long, we'll hear some things about Circle Center and what that new that remake will be there. A number of projects. And, and you look at Gainbridge Fieldhouse and what's going on inside and outside and that area as being a part of that, that downtown remake, if you will.
1: Well, th- for sure, this quadrant is going to look drastically different in in four or five years. You know, you've got the jail, you've got city county building that's going to get done. I mean, you've got a number of projects that are happening here that are just going to going to make downtown look and feel different. But you know, it, this, this is a this is a, a business show, right? This is a business audience. It's going to be incumbent upon all of us to ensure that the vision is carried out, right? Like we've got an incredible opportunity. Uh, and we can't squander it. We've got to make sure that, you know, Jim mentioned at the event last night that we've got the potential for these next five years to be the most incredible in our city's history, but that's not going to happen by chance. And we've got pieces that are now in place. You mentioned the mall, it's an incredible opportunity, the Elanco investment. So a lot of great things happening. And now it's time for our leadership, both on the on the civic side and also on the on the business side, certainly with the endowment and others on the philanthropic side, to get coordinated and get strategic in the way we make investments and really build out our downtown.
0: Well, you talk about big events, uh, and you've got a big one coming up uh, in 2024. A lot of anticipation for the NBA All-Star Game, that All-Star Weekend, which is truly a global uh, global affair. Talk about what folks can expect. I know planning has been underway for some time now, and, and there was actually news that uh is it the set uh, the, the saturday night festivities are going to be at um at lucas oil. at lucas oil the saturday All right, i'm All sorry Star. lucas oil yeah. yes to get more people you want this to be an accessible event
1: this is going to be so different from the way other all-stars have been have been executed i mean we we've we do this different i mean you know this anybody that's listening to this understands that we do these events differently right and it's just in our dna and and frankly we have to do these things differently, right? Because we're competing with bigger cities, maybe that have other amenities or more money to spend. So we've got to really make this an all hands on deck type effort. And we've done that. We are focused on making this uh, uh, from a priority standpoint, the most community focused uh, all-star event ever. And Saturday night, putting it at Lucas Oil, you've got 35,000 seats that are going to be around uh, the court. And then the other half of the field will be uh, used for concerts and other things. So we'll really t- maximize the use of that building. Um, but that lets us get people again. We, we talked about the 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 uh, the, the state finals. This will this will give us a chance to get get families in, get people in who otherwise would never have access. I mean, Salt Lake City All Star Saturday Night. Uh, I think Rick mentioned this. I mean, it was several hundred dollars was the cheapest seat. I mean, wow. top top seat right in in the balcony, and and we we'll, we have tickets on sale for twenty four dollars. Uh, so, I mean, it's going to give us a chance to get people in who, who would never experience this otherwise. And then just the whole look and feel of downtown. We want to make sure that when people are downtown, they know that they're in the middle of all-star that experience. It's not just one day and a game that comes and goes. It's $300 million worth of, of economic impact. And it, and it's a way to showcase the, uh, the city and a state. I mean, the, the truth is that the basketball stories are going to kind of tell themselves, right? I mean, we're basketball state, the game, the players, all that sort of tells itself. But if you've got 1,800 members of the media and you've got largely an international contingency, this is our chance to talk about Indiana as a tech hub, as a hub hub for global business, uh, as an incredible uh, place for research and development through our, our unmatched university system. We've got the number one school of engineering in the world. We've got the largest school of medicine in the country. We've got the number one school of music in the world. We've got incredible arts and culture and DJs and culinary. And we've got a Tell that story, and All-Star really is a chance to put put the city and the state on display.
0: And is is the unique element of the NBA All-Star game the international component, the fact yeah. that it truly is an international yeah. event? So you talk about selling Indianapolis and selling Indiana. This is selling it to, uh, to a big audience. To the
1: world. Last year in Salt Lake City, there were 25 players from 17 countries that participated over the course of the events of uh, the weekend. Uh, we we expect at least that much and we'll also have at least one maybe several all-stars that are going to be participating over you know from the Pacers so a lot to get excited about but you're exactly right this is a chance to you know the, the governors always talking about you know bringing the world to Indiana taking Indiana to the world this is it this is the the epitome of that we get to we get to tell the story to international audience.
0: before we go to break yeah uh, Danny have to ask you a question about the Pacers you had not the number uh, 7 picked made some made some moves as well what can fans expect Uh, From the uh, this uh, new addition, Indiana Pacers ball club.
1: Well, I mean, look, people are excited about the additions that we. People are excited about the team and the and the the, sort of the trajectory that we're on. But the additions this year are going to be really good. I mean, Shepard looks like he's a lights out shooter. Jarris Walker plays on both ends, and if you saw him, uh, you know, in summer league, he just is. It's a grown man, and there there is a different feel. And and I, I think if you talk to Pritchard, he'd tell you, "Well, we're not quite there yet," and they probably. They probably tamp down expectations a little bit, but everybody is really excited about what's happening in that locker room. And most importantly, maybe, those guys have an incredible chemistry. They all get along, they all want to be here. They speak glowingly about the community and they want to be engaged. Tyrese, you uh, just signed this incredible contract. The first thing out of his mouth was, right now, I've got resources that I can reinvest in this community, and we want to take care of people. And, You know those are those are the intangibles. And when you look, it's not always the most talented team. Look at what the run that Miami had this year, right? Yeah, it's not always the most talented team. When when it clicks, and you've got incredible culture and incredible chemistry, all of a sudden you marry that up with some talent, and you've got something. And that's what's happening here.
0: Much more ahead with Danny Lopez, uh, including his path to Indianapolis. It's an interesting one. Uh, First generation son of Cuban refugees, also a substantial political. Uh, background uh, here in Indiana as well. We'll talk about that and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week is Danny Lopez, the Vice President for External Affairs and Corporate Communications for Pacers Sports and Entertainment. And in the first half, Danny, we talked about all the things going on inside and outside uh, Gainbridge Fieldhouse. And I think it's so neat to think about that connection and the intentionality the Pacers have, Pacers Sports and Entertainment in being part of uh, creating that new downtown Indianapolis, let's talk about your path to Indy because it is an interesting one. As I mentioned going to the break, you are a first-generation son of Cuban refugees. Talk about that experience growing up. Yeah, I
1: mean, well, that's that's truly formative. Or anybody, I mean, I think, but yeah. my parents came in in 1960, and you know, essentially left left home, and probably expected to be back in, in relatively short order, if, if you if you know anything about Cuban history. But here we are, 60 years later, and um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. So I grew up uh, in the 1980s, and I was a sort of a product of, of Cold War Miami, which was. Obviously, a hotbed uh, for for a lot of this stuff, and right, you know, it 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 was interesting, Gary, because it it certainly shaped your experience uh, as a kid growing up. Our our, you know, we were always, you know, Ronald Reagan had that had that uh, very clear insight about, you know, if we if we squander American democracy here, where else do you go? There's nowhere left to go. You feel that personally. When you grow up in a situation like that, we were reminded of that constantly by our grandparents and our parents. We were fortunate and we've been blessed uh, to be here and, and our generations continue here in the United States. And you can't take that for granted. I mean, we've we've created something that the world has never seen and it's it's incumbent upon us to preserve it. And when you've lost it, you have a, a true appreciation for it.
0: You, you are a fierce advocate for diversity. That's very important to you. And I know uh, the Pacers organization as well, in part- uh, does that come from your your upbringing? Yeah. What's interesting is that growing up in Miami, you know, you when you're
1: Cuban in Miami, you you are the majority. <laughs> you have a mm-hmm. you know you have a majority mindset. At least we we did. My parents did not. My my mom. I mean, she used to tell stories. They lived in five. My mom and her parents uh, lived in five apartments in in four years uh, as they tried to make their way around not speaking the language and faced a lot of the sort of Miami was not what it is. Right. They had to build an enclave. But we, by the time I, you know, I was coming up, we were the majority, uh, majority politically, majority in the business community, and so you sort of had this mindset that it just was was what it was. I mean, I went to a high school where I had teachers that taught in Spanish. I didn't have one kid that wasn't Cuban or Venezuelan or something in my entire high school. So, I mean, you were raised in this sort of environment where everybody comes from someplace else and has a story to tell, and uh, and I think that's important. I think that diversity of perspective is what's really critical. You know, you can. The, the 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 racial diversity is important, the ethnic diversity is important, but really it's important insofar as you're bringing different perspectives to the table, and that's really the critical nature of it, and and that's what's what's so uh, such a such an important contribution to to your corporate culture or your organization's culture is that that different those different mindsets that people from different backgrounds bring.
0: And your your first language was Spanish, right?
1: Yeah, my my first language, the the language we spoke at home was was Spanish obviously once we once we got older it was a little diff- difficult to preserve that but Spanish is you know we speak only Spanish at at home my kids are, are 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 native Spanish speakers. They spoke we spoke Spanish at home to them until they went off to school, and so we're preserving that. The language is an important. The language, the food, the music is all important to the culture, and so we've tried very hard to preserve that. And then, practically speaking, I mean, I, I had a grandmother that didn't speak any English at all. So if you didn't speak the language, you couldn't communicate with your family. <laughs> it's right. a little different here, you know. Our our kids obviously our friends here are not Spanish speakers, so our kids see that that uh, we speak English. And once they see that, they pounce on that, Gary, they don't, you know, it's, it's tough to keep that, but our kids are, are thankfully are, are, are fluent and, and we've raised them in the culture as well.
0: Yeah. You, you maintain that culture, but I know, and in, in doing some, some background and research before the podcast, I know you talk about your, your parents and your grandparents being so patriotic and pro-American and that, yeah. uh, that a very, those very important things to your family and many in that community as well.
1: Yeah, and you know it shapes you as a, even today as a parent. I mean, look here's 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 the the way I I look at this, Gary. Our my kids, I've got a nine year old and a five year old. Uh, get coming of age, getting older is is hard enough. Uh, we live in an incredibly complex time, right? Technology has made that even more complex, and these kids have have a tough time. I you know, kids struggle as they come up. Now it's not as simple as it used to be, and it's they the way I look at it is our that generation, my kids' generation should not have to shoulder the burden alone of preserving this democracy. And the truth is that there is a real question right now around whether our democracy and our institutions can withstand our tribalism. And I believe it; they can because I was raised in an environment where this was the pinnacle. This was the the, the shining city on the hill. So I know it can happen, but it's not going to happen by mistake. It's going to happen because we, my generation, Generation X, and millennials and Gen Z years understand the greatness of what we have inherited and the obligation that we have to, to make that better and, and, and pass it along to our kids. And so I take that very seriously. My wife takes that very seriously. And I think that comes from our upbringing.
0: Yeah. So growing up, were you, uh, was it sports, academics, the arts? What, uh, what was the the young Danny Lopez uh, all about?
1: It was, it was basketball all, all all day, all night. Um, And, and it's, you know, I, my mom was a, uh, my mom, it was a, 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 she's now a children's author, but she was a, a children's librarian for, for her whole career. And so we spent a lot of time in libraries and a lot of time reading, but if it wasn't that, you know, you're in Miami, so it's sun, sunny, maybe not all the time, but it's hot all the time and you can right. be outside. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time outside playing and and had a blast and uh, it was a wonderful place to to grow up, had a blast. I mean, it look, I, I'm more for, fortunate than most Um I, I was raised in an environment that was that was challenging, but expectations were high. Uh, my my family, you know, my, my parents were very clear. You know, we we came here. We have a set of expectations. You know, take something as simple as higher education or, or college it was never a question as to whether or not I was going to college or my siblings were going to college it was are you going to work hard enough to go where you want to go or are you going mm-hmm. to have to settle that was yep. the question yeah uh, and those expectations I, you know not everybody has is raised with those and i was very very fortunate
0: yeah and and you talk about uh, your parents uh, your family really instilling and in driving home the fact that education can be that great leveler you know that great uh, yeah. difference maker
1: mm-hmm. yeah and that's exactly right and that's that's one of the reasons that I enjoyed I enjoy public policy. I enjoyed my time uh, working for three now governors uh, because I got to work on these kinds of issues. And that, to me, that education piece really is the linchpin. We've, we've got a number of, of issues that we continue to work through uh, at municipal level and at the state level, but I, I think paramount among them is, is that education question at all levels. Because really, when you look at, you know, public health measures or you look at you know, obesity measures, you look at smoking measures, you look at pretty much poverty levels. I mean, anything that's ties back to levels of education, even happiness and civic engagement, it ties back to your level of education. And by the way, I think one of the fun things in my previous role was I got to help sort of redefine what we mean by education, because it's not just degree attainment anymore. It's about competencies and learning. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So this idea that kids have to follow this pre prearranged path, and you're doing your, you know, you graduating at 18, and then you're graduating at 22, and then you're going off to work. It's just not real anymore. But, but there's no doubt that there's no substitute for the continual learning and the education, the true education that's that's so critical for your ability to compete in the economy, but just your ability to participate in
0: in, in civic society. Yeah, what, what's your take on the state of education? I know it's a broad, yep. <laughs> broad question, but the state of education in Indiana, especially. You know, as it comes, as, as it ties to workforce, because obviously, workforce and talent just huge issues for all state everywhere. Not just Indiana, but but certainly here, a lot of people trying to get their arms around it. As you look at the various programs and and, and initiatives and focus areas around education, what's your what's your take on the state here in Indiana? So
1: I think a, I think a lot of good has been done for sure, and I think we have. Uh, in this administration uh, begun at least to think about think um, in an innovative way about what this actually means but these are really hard issues and here's the other thing i would tell you for particularly for for your audience uh, gary that i know is interested in this i used to really be of the of the mind or of the opinion that a lot of this had to be put back on schools and you know schools were just sort of slow to change and and is very difficult to engage them and the business community didn't really want to work with them. What I've learned over time is that the biggest challenge in a lot of these questions in terms of rethinking education as the accumulation of competencies, of skills, and the sort of pivot that we have to make to rethink K-12 for sure and, and higher education, a lot of the obstacle is really the business community who doesn't really is not equipped and doesn't really want to think about how you put a process in place that assesses candidates for jobs based on what they know and what they know how to do Mm -hmm. as opposed to what titles they have also doesn't uh, necessarily invest back i mean we've the corporate community for for many years was was accustomed to sort of kids would go through the k-12 system and you'd come off the assembly line they'd snatch up they would put you to work that's not how this is anymore. Companies have to build pipelines back into 11th and, and 12th grade even and help sort of that. Number one, it's important for, for just from a bottom line standpoint, because it's how you retain people and it's how you recruit diverse candidates for jobs. But it's also important to, for the state. You can't expect schools to sort of continue to evolve. If the corporate community is not uh, willing to step up and think differently about the way they operate. And I think there's a high level willingness to do it. There's just not always a, a willingness to change the
0: way we operate. Yeah. What, what brought you to Indianapolis, uh, to Indiana? So it was really my wife. I, I had a uh,
1: Spanish language uh, media firm and lobbying firm. Um, we did political work. We were political consultants in Florida uh and ran gubernatorial campaigns and and uh and, and were involved with presidential in 2006 my partner and i we were we were young when we started it we really didn't you know you don't know what you didn't what you don't know you right. got this entrepreneurial right. spirit you just start stuff and you go we had a wonderful run my wife had done her master's year. sophia is a speech pathologist and she had done her master's at iu and uh and wanted to come back and pursue her doctorate and so uh, i left the firm by my partner he he then close it and, and was in Congress for several terms. But I came here in 2008 with Sophia and, and we didn't know anybody, Gary. I mean, we, we moved here on a whim. We moved to Bloomington initially. And it really was a, I think we're a great example of what Indiana has to offer. Because I think this is a place that if you are willing to fall in love with a state and you're willing to throw yourself into it and be part of the public service process, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there is always a seat at the table for you and um you know one of the benefits that I had was my jobs or, or, you know particularly early on but my jobs and, and and working with with Governor Holcomb Eric before he was Governor Holcomb working alongside him for a couple different administrations I got to every county and when you when you get I I actually have a I actually have a a a poem up in my in my office wall, from Arthur Franklin Mapes, that's titled, Indiana. and one of the lines there that I like is, "I must learn more of my homeland for it's paradise to me." And what I always tell people is, if you get out and you visit people and you get to know these towns, uh, your perception just changes, and all of a sudden, you've got a greater appreciation for what this state is, for the diversity that's here, for the yeah. goodness of the people here. I remember driving with uh, with with Eric. We were going. He was. He was going to speak in Switzerland County or something. I forget what yeah. it was, but we, we stopped because there was, we, it, I think it was Ripley County. It must have been Versailles. It was, it was Ripley County. We're driving through and he, he stopped in front of this shack. It looked like a shack. And he said, you see that shack? I said, yeah. Uh, and he said, well, we drove RV1 through here with Mitch. Yeah. They had a sign in the window that said, Bush lied. Americans died. And Mitch made us pull that RV back and he conf- he knocked on the door and the guy came out. He turned out to be the Ripley County Democratic chair or something like that. And he just went sort of 12 rounds with the guy. And at the end of it, they were best friends and he invited him out to the to the inauguration and all this kind of stuff. And so on the way back from Switzerland on that trip with Eric, we stopped. We knocked on the door. The guy came out. He remembered Eric. We ended up having this fantastic conversation and it just was a terrific reminder that we have way more in common than than, than yeah. not. And yeah. if you just get out and talk to people, this yeah. is an incredible state with some people with incredible perspectives.
0: That is That is a wonderful story. And I could not agree more with getting out and experiencing and connecting with people around the state. I think, you know, Indiana as a state, I think, for so many years was so siloed in Indianapolis and Fort Wayne and Evansville and each community, each region doing their own thing. I think that's beginning to break down. I think we're seeing more of it. And to your point, I think that's that's so important. But but your entree into getting into politics was about politics or more about public? It sounds like it's more about public service is, is how you landed in politics.
1: Certainly in Indiana, that's the case. Uh, early on in my career, it's like anybody else. You're just trying to figure it out and you're hustling and you know, it was, it was building a firm and it was a job and it was, how do I, you know, you're not really thinking necessarily that, that much about legacy and investment and all this kind of stuff. You're just trying to make it certainly here in Indiana. You know, it, it really has been about public service. I've, I've been very, very fortunate to work for some incredible people and they have all been people who are civic minded to the nth degree. And so I've learned from them and the beauty Gary about being here. I mean, you know, look, if we were still in Miami, it's a different calculation because the cost of living is so high and you just have to, you know, everything that you consider is different. Here, one of the beauties about the marriage between quality of life and cost of living in Indiana is that I can do things that I think are important and participate, get on boards and maybe stretch myself a little thin, maybe at the expense of some professional opportunities, frankly, because I think it's important and my family still lives a high quality of life. And that's that's a blessing. That's something that I think more people need to take advantage of. Uh, and, and we also have to do a better job of not being uh, siloed and not being an echo chamber and pulling more people who aren't sort of your conventional people who just raise mm-hmm. their hand. But other people who are really good, who may not know how to engage, and getting them to the table uh, is, is a really, really important thing.
0: What's uh, So what's next for Danny Lopez the next year here? What's, uh, got a lot on your plate. I know we talked about the All-Star game. What else is going to keep you busy here for the next uh, 12 months or so?
1: Well, one of the, one of the things that I really enjoy, and it, it's it's a, essentially a full time job, is uh, is is serving on the judicial nominating commission for this for the state. You know, we do the nominations for appellate court and Supreme Court, and it's an incredible dedication of time, but it's also incredibly important. And you see the legacy, and we're gonna, you know, we've already done five appointments in a year and a half, and I have a feeling we're gonna have at least that many over the next year and a half before my service is over there. And I, I love the first of all, I love. <laughs> I love going into the chambers and, you know, every time we're there for meetings, just look around and you go, man, this is an incredible history here. It's such a cool environment. Yeah. So, I mean, just that piece and then getting to work with the chief justice and and the, and the group is great. But the impact that you have that you know you're having for, you know, we we appointed or the governor appointed. We nominated just Justice Molter. And here's a guy that if he wants to is going to be on that court for the next 30 years mm-hmm. uh, making making law and uh, or, you know, interpreting law. And that's uh, an incredible impact to have. So I get to do that. I'm also in the, just joined the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation, which is going to keep me busy mm-hmm. as well. But look, like I said, I've got a, I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old and, and a wife who's a professor. And so we've got a busy, <laughs> we're in a busy time right now, yeah. as, as you know.
0: Well, Danny, it is, uh, Indiana is very fortunate to have uh, you and your wife, your family here in Indiana. You're making a difference. And I know We'll continue to do that. Love your story. Fascinating one. And so glad you were uh, willing to share it with us on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Gary. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download uh, all 120-plus episodes uh, and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to Inside Indiana Business. Com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.